0: First, the bad news. SAP Business AI won't generate amusing holiday cards, but it will personalize career paths for your people and let you know which suppliers are best so you can be ready for the next opportunity. Revolutionary technology, real world results. That's SAP Business AI. I don't think I know we're building one of the biggest companies on planet Earth. And so when I know so viscerally how big this is going to be, I also, you know, internalize what is going to be required to scale well, and it's all about people, right? People have been the key to our growth so far. It's, it's all about the people, right? The headlines are only enabled by the hard work that we do at the ground floor each and every day.
1: You're listening to What I Know. I'm Christine Ligorio chafkin today's episode, Culture is Everything. If you've worked virtually over the past year and a half, you know that even when connecting with your team over a screen, it's important to feel together, to feel like you're working toward the same goal, to share values while doing that. Over the course of the pandemic, we've learned that a company's culture is not just participation in a softball team or quarterly happy hours. Today's guest is the founder and CEO of the company that ranked number 64 on the 2021 Inc. 5000. It's called Bolt, and it is one-click checkout for retailers. Ryan Breslow started Bolt in 2014 as an offshoot of his cryptocurrency research at Stanford. And after years of product development and fundraising and slow growth, the company has finally hit an inflection point and is growing wildly, with over 10 million shoppers on the Bolt network. Soon, it will have 500 employees. Ryan is a founder with some fascinating, forward-looking things to say about company culture, and where leadership of strong teams is headed to. But before Ryan was even scraping together checks to put together his first round of funding, he was the child of a family of entrepreneurs, always eager to earn a buck.
0: Ever since I could remember, I wanted to be an entrepreneur. And so I think it was my family roots. My, both my grandfathers immigrated to America and started their own Businesses, and so did my dad. Um, they started small businesses, but um, I was always surrounded by entrepreneurs, and I didn't really know much else. So I guess I was destined to do the same.
1: Ah, oh, that's great. What what kind of businesses did they have?
0: One grandfather immigrated from South Africa and started a seafood importing business, and uh, one came from Russia and became an accountant. And started an accounting firm, started his own firm um, that he ended up selling. And so um, they're both successful and unbelievably hardworking. And you know, I learned that from my dad, my grandparents, who you know really had an unbelievable work ethic and who got me working early. Um, my dad got me a job at a grocery store when I was fourteen and said, you know, time to go learn the value of a dollar and go work for it. And so, um, he always had me doing different jobs. He has a hit a local golf range. So I was always like washing cars and cleaning clubs and
1: finding balls.
0: (laughs) Yeah. It was actually crazy. You you hit balls into a lake and so go out on a tow boat and scoop balls up in the Miami sun for like six hours with a fishnet. So it was always just working a ton when I was a kid.
1: Yeah. I mean some people who come from very entrepreneurial families, I mean obviously you you kind of get the feel for what it's like um and sometimes it's so intense that they say no 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 just sign me up for corporate America. I <laughs> I don't need to start something myself. Was the idea side of it always there for you too? Um I, I mean I I hear that Bolt is not your first venture, is that right?
0: Yeah. It wasn't. So I learned that on the internet I could make more than minimum wage. Or you know, I could make more than washing cars. Or you know, I started building websites, and so I found I was pretty good at doing that. So building them, doing SEO and pay per click marketing, and all this type of demand gen. And so I started an agency, worked with a bunch of clients, and then I had all my own different businesses. Sort of memory foam mattress business. I had a site that did outsource SEO services, um, those add to cart SEO services, and so did a lot of things. Uh, I'd come home from school, I'd open my laptop, and I would just play around on the internet finding ways to make money. And so I guess I cut my teeth pretty early with thinking about how to build uh, scale businesses, how to hire people uh, remotely at that time, how to manage engineers and consultants and contractors. And so got an early start. Wait.
1: So, how old were you when you were starting to hire people remotely online and manage other people? How many people were you managing? In in was it high school or college?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. It was pretty early, I'd say, probably fifteen, sixteen. So definitely by high school, maybe a year or two into high school, I was starting to do that. So one of those um, like
1: situations, like nobody on the internet knows you're a kid, kind of situations
0: yeah yeah (laughs) when I was 14 I looked like I was 11 like I always looked so young so no one would ever take me seriously you know face to face but if you could hide behind your computer screen you know no one knows how old you are so oh yeah just do a bunch of stuff online and that's where you know I was able to like manage people and and have some degree of respect despite my age
1: That's awesome. So, how much money were you making, like, say, by senior year of high school?
0: I mean, I I had some customers who were paying me like maybe a thousand dollars a month for SEO services, for instance, and so that was a lot. I like I thought that was a ton of money in high school, Um, and you know, I had some who'd pay me like a few thousand dollars to build a website, and so that was the scale. It definitely like Gave me spending money, which was nice and it was definitely more than I got bagging groceries.
1: <laughs> yeah, for sure, for sure. So tell me, where, where did you go from there and what was the genesis of Bolt? Um, I, I want to, could you first start by telling me a little bit about Bolt and then tell me about the genesis of the idea?
0: Well, I continued to scale the web services side. And so it, at Stanford, I started a company called Sites by Hand. We were doing add to car custom built websites. So you know, you describe what you'd want built. You'd, there's like a smart form. You'd say, "Oh, I want this on the site." This, and then we like auto quote you. You pay for it, and then watch it get built for you. Still think somebody should build that business, but uh, it was very hard to scale that nights and weekends while also having a full curriculum and uh, trying to kind of be a college student. And so we ended up selling that business for a little bit of money. Um, I had a co-founder named Barish. By that point, I had known a ton about e-commerce. Like I would built, you know, Shopify sites, big commerce sites, Magento sites, Drupal sites. You know, so I knew all the tooling. And I got into crypto at that time. It helped start the Stanford Bitcoin Group in early 2013. So one day I was like, man, this whole payments thing is going to change. Crypto is going to change it all. And so I'm going to leave school and start a crypto payments company. And I had a few different ideas. And then about a year in, I say the idea hit me like a lightning bolt, which is why has nobody solved the checkout problem? And I couldn't get a straight answer. Like I couldn't come up with a reason why no one had solved checkout. And so after I kind of got struck with this idea, I couldn't unsee this vision. And um, from that day on, I was like mid-2015, I uh, started charging for checkout with Bolt.
1: And so it wasn't the original idea per se. It was the idea after, you know, a year of sort of working on a crypto company, working on this idea of sort of payments. What do we do with checkout? How did, when do you, in your mind, is Bolt the original the crypto idea or is it what started a year later with the checkout
0: well you know nothing's a straight line yeah and so a lot of those ideas are very relevant like i was figuring out how to make flows easier right for crypto bolt how to make uh you know risk mitigation more seamless we have a huge fraud component at bolt and so um, i'd say you know I learned how banking systems work and I for a year I was like traveling around the country talking to bank executives pitching them on why they should bank us. And so and I learned a lot. Some of it transferred over some of it didn't. But it was when I came up with the idea for checkout that was like, was definitely an aha moment. And that's when everything solidified.
1: Uh, That's so interesting. And so you sort of incorporated these ideas from your learnings in security and in crypto into a kind of standard payment checkout system that is faster, right? It's like
0: a one-click sort of checkout.
1: Is that correct?
0: Yeah. And so the thesis was that you shouldn't have your payment processor and your fraud engine and your conversion teams as separate, right? They all have a shared goal. But today, when you hire these tools as separate entities, they have kind of different competing priorities. And so I'm like, there should be one company that manages your checkout and the orchestration around payments and risk and all that all in one. And by the way, if you own checkout, um, you can unify accounts across the Internet and unlock this one-click network effect. So I was like, okay, like the checkout software part of the business, we call it checkout OS, checkout operating system, that really needed to exist. And then the one-click shopper network needed to exist. And so there are two things that are accomplished by both two kind of very distinct things. It's the software and the network, and both are super important.
1: That's so cool. So tell me, where is Bolt today? Before we go back and talk about the building of the company um, into what it is today, what is Bolt today? How many employees do you have? Revenue? Locations?
0: We started this year, maybe two hundred employees. We'll end close to five hundred. Next year, we'll be close to eleven or twelve hundred. So we're on a pretty incredible growth inflection point. You know, we do billions, soon to be tens of billions in volume. Through the platform, a couple years ago we had about a million shoppers on our network. Today we have over 10 million shoppers on the Bolt network, which in the next couple years will grow to 100 million shoppers. The real exciting thing about Bolt is we've signed these enormous, enormous deals. They take a little bit of time to implement, but within these deals we have the vast majority of our next couple years of growth already booked, and we just kind of have to implement. And so, you know, there's been a lot of investor excitement and folks pouring money into Bolt. It may not be immediately visible from the customers on bolt.com slash customers who are amazing, but it's all the ones that are about to come that are, you know, extremely exciting.
1: When we come back, I'll talk with Ryan about his leadership challenges as the company grows to 500 people and the art of maintaining zen personally while prioritizing the aggressive at work. First, a quick break.
0: First, the bad news.
1: You have been growing so fast that you landed uh, number 64, I believe, on the 2021 Inc. 5000. So congrats on that ranking, too.
0: Thank you. I think we're number one, though.
1: You think you're number one? (laughs) (laughs) You're number one today on this uh, on this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, you know, the the growth wasn't always there and wasn't always a given. The money was not always pouring in for you. Last time we talked, you told me that for the first few years of the company's life, you felt like every six months that the company was going to die. Um, it was a small company, you know, with just a dozen employees working on different ideas, um, building out different projects. Take me through those first few years and, and what that was really like. Maybe take me through one or two of those crises. That you went through?
0: Yeah. So, this is a really hard company to build. We had to effectively create a category. Right now, checkout, there's like Bolt for this, there's copycats of Bolt, there's checkout one click for this, and B2B and for digital goods and for crypto. Checkout wasn't a category before Bolt. We created the category. And so, category creation is very hard and very expensive, right? It costs hundreds of millions of dollars. You have to build brand new tech. You have to explain to partners how to partner with you. They've never, shopping cart has never partnered with a checkout partner before. You have to explain to merchants. You call them and say, I want to do your checkout. They're like, What are you, a payment processor? Are you a fraud product? What are you? And so it's very expensive to educate an entire ecosystem about what you're doing. You know, we have some copycats who can benefit off all the hard work we did, right? Just copy what we do. And now conversations, everyone knows what Checkout is, and they could raise hundreds of millions of dollars very easily because investor community understands what it is, right? So we warmed everything up, but warming everything up was really hard. Like, I, you know, no investor understood what we were doing. Basically, every single one I talked to was like, there's no way Checkout is an opportunity. Luckily, some of them were like, okay, well, Ryan, uh, you know, I want to invest in Ryan and his team. They've always loved our team and the culture we've built. So they're like, okay, we'll give them some money. So I was scraping the barrel for 50K checks, 25K checks, 100K checks. I spent two years raising a seed round incrementally. We raised $7 million seed round over two years. Um, Probably the average check was 100K, right? So you do the math, it's like 70 investors. We pieced together an A round, right? No major Silicon Valley firm would do the round with us. Um, everyone thought we were full of crap, um, and so we scraped together an A round. And then, if you look at our next round, you know, no major Silicon Valley VC invested in us or believed in us. It was all up-and-coming firms who would give us the time of day, who sat down with us, who went deep with us, and who were like, "Oh wow, they're really onto something." But and I've been really grateful to have. Partnered with these up-and-coming firms, because I think we're making each other's businesses at the same time. So definitely not the Silicon Valley, Cinderella story, Sand Hill, you know, this is I'm uh, over seven years into this company now. I' say five years were're just an absolute slog. And I say the last two years have been a lot of fun in breaking out.
1: Yeah. When was that point at which things changed? When was it about two years ago, as you just noted?
0: You know, there are a bunch of different inflection points. I think that, you know, I like to say there are these kind of scale inflection points in the company that make a big difference, right? Like when we hired our first staying engineer, who started attracting more. That was like an amazing moment. When we hired our first Actually, took to like the second or third salesperson. But when, when our first salesperson was able to independently close deals without the founder's involvement, right? That's a big milestone because that shows scalability. Um, and so I think we really um, hit an inflection point. Honestly, I said two years, probably a year ago, because two years ago, we made a tough shift from small deals, right, hiring a ton of people. Focusing on SMBs, which wasn't really scalable to big deals, enterprises, platforms, you know, multi-multi-billion dollar deals. And those that takes a long time to get good at. And so we had a year of changing our org structure, you know, changing people, changing how we work, changing how we sell, changing how we implement. And so a year ago it all started connecting. Deals started landing. Our product was good enough to be able to service. These types of customers, and so when we're able to sell, service, implement large customers, you know that's when it started inflecting. And there's also enough noise now around checkout where customers, it wasn't always an uphill battle. Be like, we don't need checkout. A year ago is when there's enough momentum behind checkout as a category that customers were like, okay, we should probably talk. And it wasn't so much of an uphill battle every time. And uh, that's when things just started, like, to really take off.
1: Wow. So two years ago, you started hiring like crazy. A year ago, you start finding more and more large-scale clients. And, you know, all kind of in the midst of the pandemic, all this growth has um, has sort of come to you. What, I, I mean, the hiring stuff is a challenge itself, right? I mean, the leading a significantly larger team is a challenge for many founders. Um, what have you learned about that? Um, what have you learned about not leading a small team, but leading this fast-growing and now quite sizable team.
0: Yeah. I mean, culture at this scale is everything, right? Because how do you determine how 400, soon to be 500 people operate every day? So the culture we establish you know, has such an impact, and that's why we spend so much time on culture. We've coined the term conscious culture, And we have blazed the trail with our Conscious Culture Movement, which people can go check out on Conscious.org. You know, I have a weekly standing meeting on culture where we talk about what's going well with the culture, what's not, what we need to change. So we've treated culture scientifically. We've published all of this. We've open sourced it online. And so we have a culture we call bridging execution with humanity. It's about both those things. We are an execution culture. We hold very high standards for performance, and we don't mess around. We hit hard goals. Um, on the other hand, we treat everybody fairly. We pay fairly. We have strong equity and diversity and inclusiveness. We give everyone regular, transparent feedback about where they are at, what they're doing well, what they're not doing well, not every six months, but every couple weeks. And we're the first tech unicorn to do four-day work week. We want you 100% dialed in when you're in the office. We also want you 100% restoring when you're not in the office.
1: That's great. I was just going to ask about the four-day work week. Tell me where that came from, and tell me also where where the push toward this kind of conscious culture came from for you.
0: Yeah, I get that question asked a lot. Like, how did I know to focus on culture so early? We've had a culture playbook since almost day one at Bolt, and To me, the goal is always to build an iconic company. I don't think I know we're building one of the biggest companies on planet Earth. And so when I know so viscerally how big this is going to be, I also internalize what is going to be required to scale well. And it's all about people. People have been the key to our growth. So far, it's it's all about the people, right? The headlines are only enabled by the hard work that we do at the ground floor each and every day. And so, I've always known. And there's a Belichick quote, which is the score takes care of itself, right? If we focus on the people, we make smart decisions, and we hit goals, and we have impact, score will take care of itself, right? We'll raise the money, we'll get the headlines, we'll get the valuation. Everything else will come. We just got to focus on hiring great people, scaling, executing. And so that's always been my philosophy.
1: And have there been any logistic changes you've had to make the four-day workweek work for the company in order to continue meeting your goals?
0: Yeah, you know, we never proclaimed that four days is an easy switch. We had to manage the logistics, customer support rotations, and on-call rotations. But we've got some pretty smart people in our companies. We were able to figure it out. It wasn't too big of a deal. We figured it out and it's working really well.
1: Having that clean line might even be easier than some of these these measures that other companies are trying, you know, the no Zoom Fridays or no meetings Fridays. It's like somewhere in the middle is just kind of an awkward place to be.
0: Yeah, go full steam, go two feet in, Fridays off. But we were considering all that stuff too. We tried it, didn't really work. People were still getting burnt out. We had to coach them to take more time off. And then we're like, d- let's remove all the complexity. Right. I don't like complexity. Fridays off, done. <laughs> it's, it's the best thing we ever did, honestly. Do you have any either statistical
1: or d- just anecdotal evidence that, that it has had a real effect?
0: Yeah. I need to get the exact stats, but it's like, this is within a certain, range. It's like 86% of our team believes that they're more productive. 88% believes that their well-being, their quality of life, health, well-being has improved. And it's over 90% who want to continue with it. Wow. That's huge. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's kind of incredible. Yeah. Yeah. The, the middle statistic you gave with the, the well-being and health. I mean, I think that's something companies can learn from because companies are you know actively trying so hard to improve their benefits their health benefits and their workers health and uh, and and yet this might not be something they'd considered
0: yeah i mean you try to do all of these things to make up for the fact that your team is burned out and people don't have time to live like human beings if you're working 5 days a week you know you're in meetings all 5 days and the weekends you're catching up you know people have families they have kids they have you know, hobbies or everybody should have a hobby or two that they be able to pursue. With a five day work week, none of that is possible. And so we're just perpetually exhausted. I realize that about myself. I think four day work week is inevitable and it's the way of the future.
1: So speaking of balance and sanity, you are not only, you know, the founder and CEO of Bolt, but you have you have this conscious site and you have, uh, you know, a passion for that. You have another company and you have a dance movement that you've started as well. Um, tell me about balancing your own life and your passions and your work with your kind of side hustle work as well.
0: Yeah, I love starting new things all the time. So dance is a big passion of mine. Um, it started in college. I got into break dancing and then I just fell in love with street dance, so I got into house dancing and shuffling, and a whole bunch of different things. And for me, it was always a refuge when building Bolt, a lot of dark times, building this company. There are, you know, unhealthy escapes, and there are healthy escapes. I think dance is the healthiest escape. And uh, I'm like, one day, I was in nature, and I took some time off which I do, like to be in nature alone on my <laughs> time off. And uh, I was meditating and I was like, you know, holy cow, we just need to get everyone dancing. And so that day I decided to do whatever I could to get everybody dancing. And, you know, a month later, it started a nonprofit, uh, which is a 501c3 nonprofit, The Movement. We host 20 classes a week that are full in Miami and 15 going to 20 in New York that are completely free for the community. We're opening up New Orleans right now, L.A., San Francisco. You know, in the next 18 months, I want to be in every major city across the country. You know, we're just getting everyone dancing.
1: Very cool. Um, You have another... uh... Is it another company as well?
0: Um, ECO. ECO, yes. ECO is an amazing company run by uh, co-founder and CEO Andy Bromberg. So, you know, I help on the sidelines, but of other amazing co-founders there, Henry Alt, Ryan Sachs, Joey Krug, who just do an incredible job. I mean, that company is going to do amazing, amazing, amazing things. It is a spending and savings app. Is that right? So, spending and savings app. Mm-hmm. Um, you get two and a half percent when you save, five percent off when you spend at major retailers. We remove the middlemen, give all the fees back to the end user, and there's a, a, some really kind of grand plans there. So, eco.com. Stay tuned.
1: <laughs> okay, great. Ryan, you you had mentioned that a couple of times that. You know, you guys were sort of the first movers in this space, kind of consolidating a lot of different stuff into checkout for websites, for big brands, um, making that a more seamless process, um, you know, bringing security into the fold there into one click. Now you have copycats, you have other sites out there sort of chasing what you're doing, other companies. How much pressure is that on you and how do you stay a step ahead of them?
0: Oh, man, this space heating has been the best thing that's ever happened because I've kicked it into a whole new gear. Like ever since I realized that, you know, there is some competition, we've just executed at an entirely new level that I never thought before was possible. And so I love it. I mean, I one day had read Benioff's book, Behind the Cloud, because I believe we're building a company that's very similar to Salesforce. Right? It's a platform, needs to connect with the whole ecosystem. There's a large amount of technical complexity. And in his book, he writes, the best thing that could happen is a competitor pop up that if you have a technical product, right, where they're technologically behind, but they're really good at marketing. Because, you know, then 9 out of 10 of their marketing dollars go to your company's pockets. So, you know, that's what's happened. There's been a lot of marketing about checkout. We win all the deals you know, our product is just four to five years ahead in terms of our coverage or integrations or features or configurations or support for any kind of merchant checkout workflow. And so, you know, it's the complex technology checkout. And there's also a network effect, right? Our network effects leaps and bounds ahead of everybody. We have almost 30 X more shoppers, more features, you know, than the next player in the game. So we love the competition and uh welcome even more of it.
1: (laughs) Bring it on. So what's been the biggest challenge for you personally over the past year?
0: Um, You know, the past year has been a really grounding year for me. There's a lot going on in Boltland. We've raised, you know, a lot of money. We've hired a lot of people. We have scaled our executive team. We've brought in a lot of customers. We signed a lot of deals. And so it's definitely been a very high pressure year. Um, which has forced me to go inwards, you know, I was always going outwards, you know, do more of this and that and meetings, and I never really took the time to sit down and just collect myself. So now I do that all the time. You know, I've moved back to South Florida. Um, I'm not in the hotbed of San Francisco and tech and meeting people. You know, I kind of keep to myself, I live a pretty Zen lifestyle. And uh, I meditate a lot. I do yoga. I make sure I stay nice and grounded so that I could think clearly. Clear thinking is the is so important. I never realized how important that is. And so now I'm just like, I'm in a place where I'm thinking really clearly, staying grounded. And the last year has really been a breakthrough from an inner work perspective and the grounding perspective for me, which I know has been such a driver for Bolt.
1: Do you have any tips for other CEOs on managing distributed and growing, fast-growing teams and keeping that culture intact, keeping a culture, especially when a company is growing fast, the culture also growing strong?
0: Yeah. I mean, the first step is document your culture. Who are you? What do you value? What do you care about? What's a good behavior? What's a bad behavior? And iterate on that, right? Think don't make the same mistake twice. If something goes awry in your culture, learn from it, document it. Conscious.org has a bunch of playbooks that are battle-tested that you can pick and choose from to see what resonates with your business. How to build a writing culture, a feedback culture. All of these things are pretty universally good for company health, and so I definitely recommend reading through those and implementing. It's the highest ROI thing that you can do, and then it's all the basics, right? Hire great people. Don't compromise on talent. You know, spend a lot of time recruiting the best of the best. Set big goals. Be aggressive, but be kind to those around you. Those are some of my answers.
1: I like that. Be aggressive, but be kind.
0: Yeah, that's so important. That's everything. I'm super aggressive, but I always try to leave a good impression and try to keep it fun and playful. And I'm always kind as much as I can be. You're not going to please everybody, right? If you please every single person on your path, you're not aggressive enough. You actually want to lean probably on the spectrum, more overshoot on aggressive, right? Versus nice. Because if you're just too nice, you're never going to get anything done. So overshoot aggressive, but try to maintain that empathy, that humanity, that kindness throughout everything that you do. And you're going to be a magnet for other people who are the same way right? I want people around me who want to win, who are aggressive, who want to execute and have impact and are also really good people. That's the spice of life. That's the secret sauce to building a one in a billion culture.
1: Great. Thank you so much, Ryan, for being here today.
0: Such a pleasure, Christine.
1: After speaking with Ryan, what really stuck with me was his commitment to building Bolt with not just the necessary financial backing, but also the right cultural one. Bolt has since its start had a culture playbook and Ryan's team this year also launched conscious.org, a site dedicated to sharing the playbook for company culture and helping other teams define and craft their own. It's a company deeply into communicating its values, and constantly refining both their performance and their mission. In terms of satisfying needs of employees, they don't just do a four-day work week, but they also do performance reviews every two weeks. And along the way, they put everything into writing and value that. I think that in the era of virtual and distributed companies, that sort of frequent management communication and frequent documentation of not just progress, but of intents and goals, is very smart. Building culture consciously, as a team, as your company grows, that's something we can all learn from. What I Know is a production of Inc. Magazine. I'd love it if you could subscribe or follow wherever you are listening. It'll help make sure you don't miss the next episodes of What I Know. Also, if you have any friends who would love our show, please just send them a link to your favorite episode. And if you have an idea of a founder we should speak to, drop us a note at ink.com. You can also let me know directly on Twitter at Ligorio. Our producer, who, funny enough, also has copycats chasing his every move, but to the best of my knowledge has not started a multi-city dance craze, is Joshua Christensen. What I Know is also made with help from Blake Odom and editing by Nicholas Torres. I'm Christine Legorio-Chafkin. Thank you for listening to What I Know.